Hi, and welcome to Edge with Dr. Stephen Brown. This podcast series focuses on the story, the personal narrative of Australians who have pushed at the edge. They have been pioneers who are doing amazing things that are a little bit different to the everyday. Sometimes their stories are told and well celebrated, and sometimes these stories are reasonably well hidden. Dr. Stephen Brown is a highly regarded leader in the education sector, both in Australia and internationally. He is the Managing Director of the Brown Collective and has a strong interest in people and getting to know their stories. He has developed this podcast series to introduce you to some of Australia's finest citizens. Welcome everybody to this latest episode of EDGE. Uh, EDGE uh, guest today is a well-known, esteemed clinical psychologist, Andrew Fuller. Andrew is a great uh, friend and associate of Brown Collective. In my terms, arguably one of Australia's greatest in terms of the work he's doing on behalf of children, families and the broader community. Andrew has a distinguished career both uh, as a clinician, but also as a researcher and contributed to the capacity building of teachers, principals, and the broader community, as I said before. Andrew, welcome to EDGE. Stephen, it's wonderful, a delight to be with you. So hi, and hi, everyone. Andrew, tell me a little bit about yourself. How would you describe yourself? And be gentle, my friend, on yourself. (laughs) Well, at a workshop a number of years ago, they decided that I was an interesting mix of Fraser Crane, Tim Winton, and uh, Billy Connolly. I was kind of hoping for Brad Pitt and <laughs> George Clooney. <laughs> so, but nevertheless, I was sufficiently flattered to sometimes in, include that in my introduction. So I'm not sure that depicts who I am, but it's a, it's a nice, nice byline. Well, I got some more material when I introduce you in subsequent uh, professional things <laughs> that we share. So that's fabulous. So take me back to your childhood. Know a little bit about uh, the young Andrew Fuller in part around Geelong. What was young Andrew Fuller's life like? I had a very fortunate childhood, I must say. I grew up uh, in Geelong, as you said, in East Geelong near Eastern Park, which is a beautiful park. And I was very fortunate to have neighbours who I would breakfast with every morning from the age of two to about 12. And so it was almost like having this neighbourhood with two families, really, effectively. And uh, I was very privileged to have that. It occurred just because I crawled across (laughs) out of my house and visited the neighbours who took me in and fed me at about the age of two and continued to do so every morning for the next 10 years, poor people. No, they they weren't uh, unhappy about it, but it was an interesting experience. And it just taught me about the value of relationships and community and and how beautiful it was, really. And so it was a very lovely East Geelong childhood. My memory is that it was quite idyllic. I know you've got had a brother, Richard. Are your mum and dad? Uh, what did mum and dad do? So I've got two brothers, uh, Richard, who sadly passed away, and uh, he was with the Wheat Board and with superannuation, and my brother Peter, who's an ambulance officer around Frankston, and... Uh, Mum and dad were basically Geelong people through and through. Dad grew up in Bowen Heads and uh, was an accountant and mum worked for Myers. From Geelong, uh, apart from uh, skylarking around uh, the bay there, Corio Bay, 
you found your way into university. Why are you always interested in psychology, social issues? Yeah, I'd actually decided before I went to uni that what I wanted to do was psychology. And I remember, oh, I must have been about 14 years of age, going home and saying, I'm going to be a psychologist. And nobody really heard about that. In fact, I didn't know much about it either, to be honest. And uh, people would go, well, what's, what do they do? And I said, I'm not sure, but, you know, we'll that's what I'm going to do. And so it was a very interesting call. I can't clearly remember where that idea came from, but it was the right path. And uh, psychology is such a long course, about eight years in duration. So it's a good course to decide to do if you're going to do young, you know, if you can. You can do it later in life, but it's much harder. Just the duration of it means it's, it's harder to take on. So I was very lucky in that way as well, that basically... Uh, Taking that on as a major career became a fascinating process for me of just starting to unravel how you might help people in different situations and understand just the really interesting part of people. I was always interested in how they responded to things and reacted in different ways. Today, looking at some back on your life and looking forward in your life, what would you say is some formative experiences that have really good, bad or otherwise, have been part of your fabric in terms of your own development, the way you see the world, any specific moments? One of the ones that really was very powerful for me, I started out my psychology career in crisis teams. And so I'd be on bridges or in siege situations with people in the gloomiest moments of their lives. And um, I'd never really felt that I'd received much training on how you do that. So, and I guess there isn't that much training to, to really prepare anyone for that situation. So I had to kind of do what I could. And I was very, again, very lucky that basically nobody ever did anything drastic. But um, that then inspired me to think, well, how do you get to stop people getting to that point in their lives? And I started to formulate the idea that really what I would try then to do would be to work with people to create futures they could fall in love with. And that sort of became the motto of my work, really. How do you work with people, not for people, with people, so you can create futures that they can fall in love with? And that's been a, a great process. So essentially, that comes from a fundamental belief that that human beings want to have a good life. Human beings want to have, you know, be healthy. And so it's not necessarily about having somebody who solves everything for them, but sometimes helps them get a bit unstuck so that they can formulate their own way of living their life. And so around that time, I became very involved uh, with uh, the work of Milton Erickson and the solution-focused kind of theorists around at that time. And that then led me, of course, to study an area which today is so well known, this is hard to imagine, but I came up with an idea of doing a national study, which we did, on a topic called resilience. And in those days, this is showing my age, that basically people would not know what that word meant they'd say well you're talking about steel you're talking about bridges you, you know you're talking about tension and uh, i had to explain what i meant by resilience which of course is now such a prolific term and that's of course then led me along different tracks to basically think about how you might stop and so along the pathway of doing that research and i can talk about what we found but the process of doing it was fascinating, setting up, again, very grassroots research. It was largely focus groups run by well-being people in schools with young people, and many of those young people that had very hard lives and young adults as well. And 
again, it was a really community-based way of doing research rather than a, a much more scientific or analytical way. I also became aware of an American guy called Studs Terkel who would travel around and just interview people about their lives, almost in a sociological way. And I thought that type of research was really interesting where you basically do qualitative research and then theme it up. And that became really the sort of research that I focused on throughout my life, really. So, Andrew, we've obviously got a shared love in terms of education and uh, experiential base. Uh, what do you see, um, having worked quite substantially in the education sector, what do you see as some of the uh, great things about education and also opportunities and challenges, I guess, as you continue to work in the profession? I think there's a great tension in education at the moment. And the tension is between a system that wants to be accountable and wants to quantify everything and therefore be comparative with other nations and so on and focus that way with another world that is increasingly becoming more individually tailored and differentiated and personalized. And so in some ways, these two are divergent pathways that really hold the tension between them. Now, they're not mutually exclusive. We can obviously do some of each, but at the same time, if we focus too much on the quantification, standardization, we end up with a sort of one-size-fits-all type model, which I think we can just do better than that. And so really, I think it's how do we give some voice to the people who want to know the relative standings of things without toxifying our children by being too focused on hierarchies. And then also how we kind of stifle the creativity of teachers by becoming overly kind of dictatorial in terms of the way that they work with a group of young people. So that tension, I think, is yet to be resolved. It needs to be resolved at some stage because that's going to forge the future. We've talked uh, long and hard about a whole range of issues. One of them is this whole wave of change. So I describe it variously as tsunamis of ideas and, in a, uh, and, you know, another wave comes in on the profession schools, you know, well-being programs that people and schools invest in with the right intentions. What's your view about the efficacy of those particular initiatives? Well, 2020 was a watershed year. I mean, I think that in some ways the, the previous parallel year was 1995, around then. So that basically when 1995, what happened was that personal devices, laptops, email really kicked in for the first time. And I think for somebody who was born in 1996, the world prior to 1995 is unimaginable. So people would look at you, Stephen, and go, so you used to send out paper invites for people who wanted to come to a party. And that would sound incredibly quaint. And so 2020 in the same way is just this dramatic shift. And so basically it forced upon us a very different world of well-being in schools. So essentially we knew that the research was coming out telling us the effect size of resilience programs was about 0.22, appallingly low. We know that basically sitting passively journaling and reflecting seems nice for teachers, but doesn't make much difference for students. And so really we had to reinvent. We also were living in a time when mental health services were completely deluged by demand just due to the pandemic and its consequences. 
And so three major factors came about. One was having check-ins of some form so that schools could get optics over how kids were traveling. And there's electronic ways of doing that as well as paper-based ones. The second part was rather than teaching people about well-being, it was to have them work on their own well-being. So having everybody in a school on a well-being plan that they create and get some coaching around. And the third part, we were aware that basically the first people that young people turn to when they're troubled are other young people. And so what we had to do was to train a certain group of students up as mental health first responders. And we quibbled with that title for a while, but decided actually that's what they are. They are mental health first responders. And so giving them the accolades that they deserve. And so essentially what we do is we train a sort of well-being or pastoral care person and a group of about seven students. And then what happens is they're trained together in having helpful conversations, not recognizing mental illness necessarily, but allows someone anxiety and depression and a bit on self-harm. But the main focus is on having a conversation that ends up in a helpful resolution. So let's say if you were the well-being person in a school and you had a group of seven students, you might hear of a student who's a bit marginalised or doing it a bit rough at the moment. And so rather than you seeking them out, you might go to one of your seven students and say, would you mind going and checking on this kid and just letting me know by the end of the day? So this team of seven report back to you by the end of the day so they're not left carrying whatever you know might be going on for that student so that you debrief them. But... Uh, it's proving to be very popular and very powerful, particularly in the country areas, because often the resources just aren't available elsewhere. I just think it's a magic idea, Andrew, and you certainly shared that with leaders in different forums that I've been a part of. So congratulations. The, the other one, I mean, so it's a great uh, body of work that you continue to do and contribute to. But you have a catch cry, which uh, wouldn't schools be great if we designed them around the way kids learn? That would be a really profound, neat idea, wouldn't it, uh, Andrew? So (laughs) what's sitting behind that in terms of uh, some of the work you've done? Well, it's amazing, really. I suppose we know a heck of a lot more about brains and how they process information now than we did even two years ago. So even two years ago, we thought, for example, that your brain contained 100 trillion synaptic connections. And then we discovered there are three times as many. So the good news, Stephen, is you're three times smarter than you were three years ago. So that's good. That's problematic, uh, Andrew, one would say. (laughs) But we know clearly that essentially the, the way of designing learning experiences for kids where basically there's almost a pre-assessment of prior knowledge and then basically a kind of process of I do and then you know you do and then we do that that just doesn't work anymore and so essentially you want to have very short bursts of new information that is engaging so you're not basically doing a prelim I mean you can do some prior assessment obviously but you don't have to every time work out what the kids don't know about it and share it with everybody else And then it's sort of into action. So you're basically using some of the principles that we talk about that underpin computer game design in classroom interaction. And when that happens, you can see how kids' attention and concentration shifts across a lesson. And when teachers know that, or at least know the signs, they can kind of read the winds. And it means that they have the opportunity to change the gears of the lesson before the students do it for them. 
And that means less behavioral problems, less distractibility and less disengagement. So it's really quite wonderful to basically spend time with teachers really shaping it. And so often we find that, for example, in junior secondary, short birth lessons are much more powerful. And then, of course, in the longer, in the more senior years, you can have more extended periods. But of course, the other great opportunity, which we probably don't have time to talk about now, is the hybrid possibilities of post-2020 education and how we could have students basically learning around the clock, really, so they're having virtual experiences that are asynchronous, so that essentially students could access lessons at any time of the day or night and complete part of their education by not showing up at school at all. It's a very, very interesting idea, and uh, I guess that uh, triggers a whole lot of uh, thoughts for me. I mean, this this podcast is entitled Edge. People doing extraordinary things, pushing the boundaries. I guess um, that's just an example of your thinking and the Andrew Fuller that I know and uh, I care for deeply. So, Andrew, what's next for you? What you continue to make a fabulous contribution every week, every month. I uh, think, wow, you're adding and contributing. So what's next? Uh, what are you going to share over breakfast with your neighbours? Well, the next great idea is the one that you and I are doing, Stephen. So basically it's about verbal self-defence training for school leaders. And so teaching them about conflict resolution, but also teaching them about the art of verbal self-defence, which is something we basically want to train students in eventually. But because, of course, one of the worst outcomes you can have in your life is you end up in a physical altercation, which people find traumatizing. And so clearly there is language that all of us can use that de-escalate and diffuse conflict. And learning that skill, I mean... Really successful leaders need to be actors. There's no doubt in my mind that basically they need all of the stagecraft skills of an accomplished actor because they're dealing with so many people with so many different kind of approaches that if they don't have a broad repertoire in advance, they're stuck to basically one or two set plays and they often don't work and they put them at risk. That's the other part that's really worth considering. So it's about caring for our school leaders better. So you've had a chance to mix with thousands of teachers and leaders. What's your observation of the work that teachers and leaders do? Maybe a loaded question, but what do you see when you're dealing with teachers and school leaders? I think teachers are incredibly well-meaning and well-intentioned. However, sometimes the system degrades them. And I think that's a great tragedy. So as Neil Postman once said, you know, basically teachers send a message into the future, as very few other careers do, because they create brains. They are neuroarchitects. They are basically shaping the future, literally. And so it's important, I think, for us to have a calling within education to the big meanings of why we're doing this because it's easy to get distracted by the difficult year eight class on a Friday afternoon with west wind blowing and full moon rising. That's easy. But it, it's worth thinking about what's the core mission of doing this work in the first place? Why are we helping young people to basically become more thoughtful, critical, creative learners? And that's, that's a great thing because that creates a better world. Andrew Fuller, thank you so much for the contribution you're making on behalf and to so many. I've got the privilege of calling you a friend, a dear friend, and somebody who greatly admire professionally and the, the work you do. 
So uh, thank you for being the latest guest on Edge. Thank you so much. It's been great to be with you. Thank you for joining us today. You can follow Dr. Stephen Brown on LinkedIn and Twitter on at Dr. Stephen Brown One. Please join us next time for another episode of Edge.